Welcome to the Prenda Family Podcast. I'm your host, Emily Crapo. And the purpose of this podcast is to talk about the components of empowerment in a conversational, inspirational, and real way. And today we are in for a treat. Our guest today is Amy Reesing. She's a senior lecturer at ASU in the School of Social and Family Dynamics. She teaches a class on compassion, and she also teaches an undergraduate and graduate class on parenting. After I talked with Amy for just an hour, I had so many beautiful takeaways and so many great insights that I've been thinking about since talking with her. She's a wonderful person. She's completely relatable. And the topic she's going to talk about today is a topic that's on the minds of lots of our guides. She's going to talk to us today about self-compassion, which will give us a deeper understanding of our skill of empathy. And this is going to address the commonly asked question we get a lot among our guides. It's I look around and I see all these amazing things everyone is doing, and I'm worried that I'm not doing enough. How do I know when I've done enough? Have you guys ever asked yourself that question? I know I have. And Amy today has some great thoughts for us on how to know when we've done enough. So Amy, thank you for being on today. I'm really excited to talk about this. Hi, Emily. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to to be talking with you today and hopefully sharing some information that will be helpful because I think that question, how do I know when I've done enough, is something that is really on the minds of so many of us. So it, it doesn't surprise me that it's on the minds of um, your guides. And I hear it from a lot of parents also that they're, you know, they're wondering, am I doing enough for my child? Um, what should I be doing? I, I see this other person doing, you know, doing X, Y, or Z, and I've only done X. And what am I doing? You know, how am I, how might I be detrimentally affecting my child? So hopefully we can, you know, talk a little bit and give people some tools that will help them be a little bit kinder, more compassionate to themselves and realize that we're all doing the best that we can. And often we're doing so much more than we give ourselves credit for. I love that. Yes. Let's talk more about this. All right. So I wanted to start, we can start with just a basic discussion on empathy, right? So when we think about empathy, this is really the idea of being emotionally in tune with someone else, right? Being able to put yourself in someone else's shoes to understand what they might be feeling, what they might be thinking, or even why they might behave in a certain way. This is such a great skill for children and adults to work to develop their skill of empathy, to be able to have that perspective taking, to understand why might someone be feeling or thinking or behaving in a certain way. And when you think about empathy, it's really um, can be applied to both positive and negative emotions, right? So a child could feel empathetic joy for another child who learned a new skill, right? Who maybe just learned to ride a bike and you could see how happy they are and the other child can feel equally as joyful because of that. Or conversely, it can be with negative emotions where say an adult hears that their friend has lost a loved one to an illness and they can feel sadness even if they didn't know that person, right? But they can feel that empathetic sadness for the other person because of the loss. So empathy is unique from compassion in that it can really be positive or negative emotions. When we think about compassion, it's really this extra step. In empathy, we can understand how you might be feeling and thinking and be feeling similarly, or you know, being emotionally in tune with you. 
But compassion is really the sensitivity to suffering in yourself or in others, and then having a commitment to try to alleviate or prevent it in some way. So it's that action component where compassion takes it a step further. You empathize with someone who might be suffering, and then you want to help them suffer less. So while empathy can be positive or negative emotions, compassion really only applies if someone is suffering distress, you know, they're sad or they're hurting for some reason. And they could be you know, hurting emotionally or physically. It could be something that's happening or happened in the past or might happen in the future. So that's kind of a quick, brief summary of how empathy and compassion fit together. I love that idea of compassion being tied towards action. Mm -hmm. uh, and especially your idea of action to alleviate something, right? And so right. when you're saying, I want to talk about self-compassion today, mm -hmm. I'm getting excited about that because I'm thinking, oh, it's it's an action. You're going to teach us actions of how to alleviate our own suffering, maybe our own worry about I'm not enough. I'm not doing enough. I'm not giving enough. I'm not showing up enough. Right. Right. Yeah, exactly. And that's that's really what self-compassion is. It's just this idea of simply being able to show ourselves compassion. We're often much better at being compassionate to others than we are to ourselves. This is a theme that that is so pervasive among people. And I it's really a light bulb moment for many of the students that I that I teach. And they come to the class because they're interested often because they feel like they're very compassionate people and they want to be more compassionate to others and figure out how they can help others. But as we talk, they often, you know, will, will say, I'm not really compassionate with myself. I'm pretty hard on myself. I'm pretty judgmental and I'm pretty quick to, to criticize myself, right? To throw myself under the bus. To throw right? myself under the bus. Exactly. We're, we're our own worst judges. Exactly. We're... And, and, you know, just like the question we were starting with, I'm pretty quick to say I'm not doing enough. But if we were to ask that same person, well, what about if this was your friend and they were coming to you saying, I don't think I'm doing enough there. I should be doing more. How do I know that, you know, that I'm not shortchanging my child? Often we are very compassionate to that friend, right? So it, it's you probably would find that it would be unlikely or not very common to have a friend come to you and say, do you think, you know, I don't think I'm doing enough. I think I need to be doing more. And most of the time that friend would, would say, oh no, let's think about it. Let's think about all these things that you are doing, that you're doing so well. So that's one of the tools that can be really helpful is just to consciously think about that. How would you treat a friend? If your friend came to you and was struggling with this and was was saying, you know, I, I feel like I'm not doing enough for the kids that I'm guiding, that, you know, I need to be doing all these extra things. What would you say to them? And actually maybe even put it down on paper, right? Like have this imaginary person or select one of your friends and imagine that they had said that to you. What, you know, what would you say to them? What would you think about them? Would you criticize them? Would you, would you look for the things that they weren't doing? Or would you be really trying to highlight the things that they are doing well and that they you know, are succeeding in? I like that idea of talking to yourself as you would talk to your friend, your best friend. Yep. And I really like the idea of writing it down because we can flippantly think things like, oh, no, you're doing fine. You know, you do this, this, this and this. But when you have to write it down, it almost makes it more real. 
Right. Yeah, it can it can slow the process down, right? And it can can make us get deeper into the thinking. So this is a this is a tool that was developed by Dr. Kristen Neff, who is sort of a the big name in self-compassion. She has a lot of great tools. I'll talk to you about some of them today. But I agree. I think writing things down can be really helpful because it can it can make us focus and be less likely to get, you know, have our minds jump to other things as quickly. So we can really be focused. And then we have something to look back at, right? Maybe if we do it one day and then the next day we're starting to feel the same way. Oh, maybe that journal that we wrote in is sitting there and it can remind us. Oh yeah, remember. Remember to try to, you know, treat yourself like you would treat a friend. And as you're saying this, I keep thinking the power of thoughts. I had someone ask me once, he was a his profession is in marriage and family counseling. Mm-hmm. And he shared with me a question that he asks a lot of his patients. And he and the question's this: how would your life be different if you didn't think that? Yes. Or how would your life be different if you didn't believe that? Right. And he says it's this light bulb moment for his his patients that come see him. They they say, "Oh, it would just be so much easier. I would just feel so much lighter. I would, I wouldn't be so worried all the time, or I wouldn't be so stressed all the time if I didn't think that or believe that." And there's this very powerful shift that happens when you realize I can choose to think other things. Definitely right. That I I can let go of some of those things and choose to focus on other things. Right. And it will make a world of a difference. Exactly. And I, this ties in so nicely with, with the topic I spoke about earlier about this awareness of our critical mind and how we often have, you know, we have, most of us have this critical voice in our head that will tell us things that are not necessarily true, right? And so if we can choose to believe that and act as if it were true, or we can question it and think, hmm, what if that's actually not even true? right? What our critical mind might be telling us, you're not doing enough. You need to be doing more. Look at, look at this other person over there. Look how much better they're doing and their child is doing because they're doing these extra things. And so our critical mind often will, will be telling us things that may not be true or may not be fully true. There is a, there's a purpose to this critical voice that we have in our heads, right? But, but we, we don't want to continue to believe that everything that it says it's true because it's often not. I have two thoughts as you're talking about this. The first one is, as you talk about the critical mind, I think the critical mind speaks only of past experiences and of future unforeseen experiences, right? When I think of my critical mind, it's always futuristic, awful things are going to happen. This Mm -hmm. isn't going to work. It's going to be a total failure. And I love how you said the thoughts of our critical mind aren't true. They're just thoughts, Right. right? And and it's important to recognize your critical mind for what it is and go, hey, that's my critical mind talking. This goes to my next thought, because we we got into this fun discussion that I would like to just touch on a bit. Yes. Is you encourage your students to name their critical mind. Can you go into that a little bit more? Sure. Yeah. So one way to to help get in touch with this critical mind or this critical voice that, that we have is to name it. Right. So to to um, realize that it exists for a reason. Right. There, there are protective evolutionary reasons behind having this. Right. Our, our human brain tends to have this negativity bias to keep us safe. But if we name it, it can sort of help us get a little bit of distance from this voice in our head so that we don't believe that everything that it says is true. And so what I do with my students is I have them 
try to think about what their critical mind says to them. So again, I encourage them to write it down, to you know, write down what are the things that your critical mind says to you. And then, you know, can think about, is that true? Do we absolutely know that what it's saying is true? What would happen if it wasn't true, right? And then we can get a sense of, well, what is your critical mind like, right? So critical minds tend to have similar things in common. They tend to be trying to protect us from something, but they can have different qualities. Some can be very loud and aggressive and mean. Others can be very naggy. Um, others can, you know, talk a lot, be very vocal. Others can be, you know, just sort of whispering to us. But when we, when we think about this critical mind, we can give it a name, which helps separate it so that we can realize, oh, well, that's our critical mind thinking. It's not necessarily the truth. It's not necessarily me. And so it's called a process of diffusion. It can sort of help separate it, that critical mind from us. And by naming it, we can get into the idea of what type of qualities it has, right? So if your critical mind is, is kind of a drill sergeant, you might choose a name that is, you know, very forceful feeling to you. When we talked, I encouraged you to think about, you know, choosing a name that you didn't hate, right? And yeah, so because my, my first go-to was Olga. I wanted to be like, I'm going to give it just an awful name. And Amy said, no, don't give it one that you hate. And, and right. tell us why, Amy. Well, because your critical mind, that critical voice is going to continue to be with you. The goal is not to get rid of it because that's not really realistic, but we want to sort of make friends with our critical mind. And so if we, if we give it a name that we hate, but we know that that part of us is still there, then, you know, then it sets up this dynamic where we're, you know, hating a part of ourselves. So right. instead, I can't keep, I can't be compassionate with myself if I'm hating that part of myself, right? Exactly. Yes, that's a that's a great connection, right? So we want to, you know, select a name that we feel like fits our critical mind. Again, if you, you know, if your critical uh, voice is really a drill sergeant, maybe you choose a really, you know, a forceful, tough-sounding name. And if it's a little bit a little bit meeker, but you know, still kind of, oh, don't do that. You you might get hurt then maybe you choose a, a softer name. So can I tell you what I named my critical mind after our discussion, Amy? Yes, please. Okay. So after Amy's discussion, again, like I said in the intro, she she shared with me so many golden nuggets that I just, I, I just kept thinking about it and thinking about it. So many things she shared just struck true to my core. And I decided that my critical mind is one that likes, you said that your critical mind either is like a flyer or a flighter, right? Mm -hmm. It's kind of that, that um, I imagine my critical mind lives in my limbic system, you know, right. somewhere where I'm, I'm emotion, I'm responding emotionally to, to things that are happening in my life. Right. And I recognize within myself that I am a flyer, 100% flyer. I am fearful. Uh, my critical mind is, sounds very fearful about mm -hmm. the future. It sounds very fearful about it. My critical mind is a doomsday sayer. Yeah. And so when I realized that those were the characteristics of my critical mind, it took me, surprisingly, it took me a couple of days to land on its name. Right. Yeah. And that's I, thought, I thought I need to find a name that embodies this feeling of fear and this feeling of flight, but that that isn't ugly you know, that I can still, I can still love and I can still accept that this is the part of me, but, but I, it's a, but it's my critical mind. And, and once I, once I give it a name, I love how you said it diffuses it. 
It's like it takes it from this really big, scary thing to, oh, that's my critical mind. So I named my critical mind Fern. And when I'm feeling very frightful, I start talking to myself. Mm -hmm. And that's my cue that Fern is talking to me. So I have to, I try to be more mindful about this. I know we're going to be talking about that in, in our next episode, but I try to be more mindful when I start talking to myself and I start saying, oh, okay, Fern, I acknowledge that you're there. That's Fern talking. I can listen to her. I can still love that part of myself, but just calling her out and naming her mm-hmm. makes me know that that is not truth. That, that thought in my head isn't truth. That's just my critical mind speaking to me. And it, it just helps me think so much clearer. It helps me process what's going on in such a better way. Right. Oh, that's great. Yeah. And I, I think that's so tr- that's so true. Most of our critical minds are trying to protect us from something, right? But what it's trying to protect us from can be different. And also the way it's trying to protect us can be different, right? So, so it sounds like Fern is trying to keep you safe, right? It, it's nervous about something dangerous happening. And again, this can be emotionally dangerous or physically dangerous right. to you or to someone else where, where other people's critical voice and critical mind may take a different approach and may say, you need to be on top. You need to be on charge. If you're not in charge, then someone might take advantage of you or you may not get what you want. You may not get your fair share. So there can, you know, these, these critical minds can take, you know, have very different types of personalities really, sure. but often the underlying, if, if we really get down to it, almost all critical minds, the underlying basis is this need to protect us from, from something. So Amy, can, are you comfortable telling our audience what your critical mind's name is? Sure. So I, uh, I did this, um, this exercise several years ago, I, some colleagues and I went to the Netherlands and were fortunate enough to, to be in a workshop where I learned about this technique. And we, we had about a day to think of our critical minds name, which, you know, it does, it takes some time. So what I realized in thinking and, you know, doing a little bit of writing is that my critical mind tends to want to take care of everyone. It tends to be sort of fearful of me, like embarrassing myself, but also it's a caretaker. It likes to take care of everybody and make sure that everyone's okay. And it doesn't like to let anyone down. So the name Catherine came to mind in that it it seemed like a a quite um, proper name because often my critical mind is telling me to act properly, right? To to not embarrass myself, to not (laughs) do anything that would embarrass anyone else. So Catherine's quite proper. And Catherine also often tells me to do the right thing, which in her mind, she has very high standards for me. (laughs) She's difficult to please, right? So, but, but I often, I think about Catherine as sort of this benevolent ruler, almost like, you know, a queen in the sense where she, she feels like she has to take care of the people who are around her, but she's also pretty strict in making sure that everyone is doing the right thing. So similar, similar to you, it's, it's been a process where I, I can pick up on when Catherine is being vocal quicker now that I have named her and now that I have recognized that, you know, that she's around. And so she, she's a little bit more relaxed than she used to be a few years ago, which is nice because I try to reassure her, right? When I, <laughs> thank you, Catherine, for sharing that. I, I'm okay. Oh, that's just Catherine. <laughs> well, that's just Catherine. It's just Fern. Okay. Bye. 
Yeah, it's just hurt. And so it really does help, you know, help us to be more self-compassionate with ourselves because when we don't, when we don't automatically assume that all of these things that our critical mind is telling us are true, we don't beat ourselves up quite as much, right? And it's a process. It's definitely not an overnight thing. It's a process. We get better at it the more we do it. It can be useful even to share this with people who are close to you. I, I shared it with one of my colleagues who actually was also in the in the workshop. And so she will sometimes say, is that Catherine talking? Oh, nice. <laughs> and so I, you know, then it's like, oh, you're right. That That is Catherine talking. And so, <laughs> so maybe I need to be a little bit, you know, a little bit more compassionate with myself and maybe, you know, not beat myself up, you know, emotionally about not getting that, not meeting that deadline or not, you know, agreeing to do those extra things. So I want to tell you a little bit more about another technique that Dr. Kristen Neff um, developed. She calls it the self-compassion break. And when, when Dr. Neff has identified self-compassion, she really thinks about self-compassion having three components to it. So the first component um, is mindfulness, which we'll talk about in our um, next segment. But a brief idea about mindfulness is like paying attention in the present moment without judgment. So it's much easier for us to be self-compassionate with ourselves, to be kind to ourselves, right? And to help ourselves not suffer if we're just paying attention to what's happening right now and not judging ourselves. So that's the first component. The second component is common humanity. This idea that we're all human and we're all experiencing similar events and situations in life, right? At any given moment, not everyone's experiencing the same thing, but part of being human is suffering and not having everything go well. And so common humanity. The third one is self-kindness. Right. So the idea that to be self-compassionate, we have to be kind to ourselves and to really remember that the kindness that we give to others, we can give to ourselves. Which goes back to our first tool with, you know, talking to yourself as you would talk to a friend. Exactly. So this self-compassion break is something really quick and easy that you can um, get in the habit of doing. It's really just remembering these three components and then coming up with a phrase that works for you for each of these. And when you're feeling like you're just really beating yourself up, you're, you know, you're, you're feeling like, oh, I need to be doing more. Why can't I be like someone else who, you know, seems to have this perfect life? Or why did I not do this? Well, I messed up on this. I forgot something that I was supposed to do. Right. Or my, my strategy that I tried with my child didn't work. And, you know, how could I have not seen that? When we recognize that we're having those moments of suffering and kind of being hard on ourselves, we can come up with a phrase, right? And it might be from mindfulness, this hurts, this is stressful, right? Or it could be as simple as identifying, recognizing this is a moment of suffering. I'm hurting right now. I'm, I'm being hard on myself right now. So you can, it, there's no set phrase that you have to use. It can be anything that, you know, that feels right to you. But mindfulness is just recognizing, right? This hurts. This is stressful. This is not fun right now. Is it recognizing the feeling or recognizing the situation? It, I'm hearing this pattern of this is. Is that the typical, mm -hmm. the typical words to start that part? Very, it's very common. It doesn't have to be. But yes, that, that's very common. Just sort of 
identifying what's happening right now, right? Because for mindfulness, it's the present moment. So trying not to let yourself get pulled into what might happen in the future, right? I messed up on this. This means I'm never going to get it right. Nope, just right now. <laughs> yeah, so this is a moment of suffering. This hurts. This is stressful. This, this is chaotic. This is this messy. Is exactly. Yep, yes. all of those, all of those of work and whatever feels right to you. And then for common humanity, you want to come up with the phrase. Something like, I'm not alone. Others feel this way. Right? I'm not the only one who tried something new and it didn't work. So trying to place yourself within the broader scheme of I'm human, I make mistakes. I'm human, I make mistakes, but I'm I'm in good company because we're all humans and we all make mistakes. So like, this exactly. is messy, but hey, life is messy. No, no human goes through life without it being messy, right? Or yes. we all go through chaotic moments. Mm-hmm. Just, just that feeling of I'm not alone in this. I'm not a screw exactly. up. I'm, I'm nope. having a human experience because I'm a human being. Exactly. Yep. And then the third component that you want to come up with the phrase to say to yourself is related to self kindness. It's going to be okay, right? Some some people will will call themselves by their name, right? Amy, it's going to be okay. You're going to get through this, right? Dr. Krista Neff even says, you know, if if it doesn't feel too cheesy to you, put your hands over your heart and or, you know, on your on your chest and feel the warmth and feel that touch that you're giving yourself and saying, it's going to be okay, right? You could think, may I be kind to myself in this moment? And so when you put them all together, you're basically you're comforting yourself, right? You're giving yourself self-compassion which is great because we don't always have someone around to show us compassion. We may even be so embarrassed that we don't want to tell anyone what's happening, right? Because our critical mind might be so vocal that we don't want to even share that we're suffering or that we messed up. And so if we can show ourselves that self-compassion, comfort ourselves, then it can get us to a place where maybe we, you know, then maybe we can say, oh, you know what? I'm not the only one. Let me me reach out and talk to somebody else. And then that really does reinforce. It reinforces that, you know what, you're not alone. This is, you know, this is, everyone has these moments of suffering. And that can be so validating. So I think I would really encourage your guides to, you know, practice some of these tools for self-compassion, but then reach out to other people. Because I guarantee what they'll find is that other people have felt the same way. And that sense of that common humanity, the sense that I'm not the only one who did this can be so powerful and can really change your mindset. As you're talking about this, I think about all of Brene Brown's teaching on shame and how the really the only way to address shame is to shine a light on it and talk about it, Exactly, which is what you don't want to do. Like, like it's so scary. Yes. Instinctively, you want to hide your shame. Right. Because it's just it's so close to you and it's so painful. And it's just this really ugly part of you that nobody can ever see because who could ever love you? Yeah. And so when you can when you can reach out and say, hey, I'm struggling with other people and, and um, just shine a light on it, then it just makes it seem less shameful. Right. Well, and yeah, it, it feels very scary. And your critical mind is probably going to be really vocal telling you, don't do that. Don't do that. You're going to make yourself look so bad. But then when if you're brave enough to to do that. What you're going to find is that other people are going to be compassionate to you and other people are going to tell you, you know, I've been there too. Maybe not the exact same situation, but that's happened to me also. And so that will, you know, they'll be giving you compassion 
but then that also helps you be compassionate to yourself to show yourself that self-compassion because it reinforces that idea that, you know what, I'm not alone. Other people have experienced this. This is just a moment, right? Tying back into mindfulness. It's just a moment. It's not going to be this way forever. I, I messed up, but that doesn't mean I have to mess up next time, right? I can learn from it. Amy, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us today. This has been fantastic. Thank you so much, Emily. I appreciate you having me. Oh, of course. And this is the first part of a two-part series that Amy's going to do for us. Next week, she's going to dive into more of mindfulness and how to be aware of ourselves. So be on the lookout next week for that episode. It's going to be as equally wonderful as this episode was. And just as a reminder, the opinions and comments shared in this podcast are not the official opinions and comments of Prenda. The purpose of this podcast is to continue an ongoing conversation about education and empowerment. And if you'd like to continue this conversation about self-compassion and our critical mindset with us in person, join us for our lunch and chat this Thursday at 12 p.m. Arizona time. Everyone is welcome.